Hey, this is Kale. I want to quickly remind you that this episode has spoilers for Batman Year One from Frank Miller. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Matt and Kale Read Comics. Every episode, Kale and I discuss a different graphic novel. My name is Matt Smith. I am a Canadian and British cartoonist, comics educator, and podcaster currently living in Paisley, Scotland. Hi, and I'm Kale Werke. I'm a longtime mainstream comic book fan, cosplayer, podcaster, collector, and foreign filmmaker from Vancouver, BC. Yeah, Kale, I'm very excited for this book. Before we get into this book, though, a little bit of housekeeping. Just want to give a shout out to comic underscore BK Geek, who gave us a shout out on their blog. Uh, they're doing comic book reviews from India. It was very nice that they gave us a little shout out to the podcast. So shout out to comic underscore BK Geek on Instagram. Uh, also, Kale, our social media, I've been doing as much as we can, you know, both of us posting more and more, um, but we've been trying to share more supplemental material. We talk about how this is, you know, it's very kind of strange doing an audio only uh, podcast about comics, which is such a visual medium. So if you're not following us already on uh, social media, we've been posting clips and um, behind the scenes sort of stuff, but also any pages or panels that are references to other comics and just kind of illustrations of what we're talking about, but very exciting. We tagged Bill Morrison, who was the artist of Radio Aquaman. We just finished a two-week double-sized episode of Radioactive Man, uh, the Simpsons spinoff, and he commented on our social media. It was really cool. Did you see it? Yes, I totally saw it, and it was very exciting because uh, I've been a huge fan of the Simpsons for a very long time and to have like a collaborator of Matt Groening uh, comment directly on our work is so exciting. Yeah, it was really cool. So, um, if you go to our our Instagram at Matt and Kale Read Comics, you can see that at Atomic Battery, who is Bill Morrison, he uh, pointed out we, we showed the difference between the origin of Radioactive Man depicted in The Simpsons when they're reading the comic book and then when they actually made it into a comic book. And he commented that they wanted we wanted our Radioactive Man origin to match the episode as closely as possible. But Steve Vance, who was the writer, or possibly Matt Groening, inventor of The Simpsons, had the brilliant idea to make the lightning bolt a piece of shrapnel rather than just a costume detail. This added a constant problem for Claude Kane III as he had to constantly wear hats to conceal the fact that he was Radioactive Man. Uh, we said that in our episode, if you haven't listened to our Radioactive Man two-parter, that was one of our favorite runners, our favorite gags, Kale. We talked about how he has this lightning bolt in his head. He has to keep hiding. So it was just really kind of cool for one of the creators of this comic to comment and to uh, give us a bit of insight of where who came up with that idea. Um, Kale, where can people find us online for social media now that we're talking about it? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Matt and Kale Read Comics or on Twitter at Matt and Kale Read. And we will post stuff for this episode as well. Kale, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Batman Year One, one of my favorite Batman stories uh, of all time. Uh, so, and we're circling back towards uh, Frank Miller. Yes. Because we talk about him all the time these days, but um, this is one of his uh, seminal works. So it's it's kind of nice to actually have a chat about it. 
Yeah, this is our fourth Frank Miller book that we've talked about. Again, you know, listen to our previous episodes. We did a two-parter on Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which was him examining Batman kind of in the twilight of his years, the end of his career. This rewinds the clock. This is his follow-up to that where he goes to the start of Batman's career. We also did an episode on Frank Miller's Sin City, this sort of crazy neo-noir crime comic. And we did an episode with my good friend Josh Robb, uh, one of my favorite episodes that we've done, uh, Daredevil Born Again, which was Frank Miller writing uh, Daredevil, another one of his kind of uh, characters he's known for, collaborating with David Mazzucchelli, who is the artist of Batman Year One. So it ties into a lot of our previous episodes. Kale, you said that this is one of your favorite Batman comics of all time. I mean, can you tell us why in a few words, or is that going to be the entire episode explaining why it's your favorite? Uh, yeah, it's just the journey of Bruce Wayne becoming Batman. It has been kind of replicated and borrowed from uh, in different films and media. So this is where it all started. This was, you know, right after Crisis of uh, Infinite Earths, and they were trying to reboot Batman. And, uh, you know, uh, they brought in Frank Miller to uh, start writing uh, this kind of, quote unquote, retelling of the origin story. Uh, and then, yeah, to bring in all these other elements. And it it's just it's kind of an easy book to read as a new Batman fan. Let's say you hadn't read any Batman books before, you don't know the mythology. Um, it's a great way to start, and it just gives a good rounded um, origin story uh, to the character. All right, you said a lot of stuff that I want to circle back to, but you mentioned that they brought Miller in. You said that you wanted to kind of talk about the the genesis of this book. You said you've done some research on the the background of this series. Yeah, exactly. So um, Denny O'Neill uh, brought in Frank Miller to uh, do a bit of uh, kind of a retooling uh, of Batman after Crisis of Infinite Earths. And so um, uh, previously, Frank Miller had, did The Dark Knight Returns, and that was very successful. And they thought that bringing um, uh, Frank Miller to do this book would be amazing after, especially after Daredevil Born Again. Um, so it I think he had kind of garnered this uh, just uh, reputation for uh, making heroes grounded and um, realistic. And I think this is also like a very realistic looking Batman. Uh, and it has that kind of uh, feel that it could be, you know, any time, you know, an, an actual place. Uh, I feel like Batman begins, uh, you know, barred a lot of uh, elements from this book to make it more uh, make the film more grounded as well. Uh, and yeah, I feel like also, I mean, I, I thought of uh, Batman Mask of the Phantasm where they do. Um, yes, these... one of my favorite, one of that. Oh my gosh. We'll talk about Phantasm. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So Bat Batman Mask of the Phantasm also borrowed elements from this, uh, you know, with uh, Batman and his origin. So I thought it was, you know, it's it's just so like, part of the mythology now like it has become uh its own thing and uh i we can talk a little bit more about how i feel about the characterization of like selena kyle and things like that in this yes. book but um for now i mean I, I think this is like a really well done story and a well um kind of conceived arc for the character just just to piggyback on your sort of quick history lesson crisis of infinite earths you're a little bit older than me do you remember when this came out this was DC realized that like their continuity was so confusing and they have like different versions of Superman and 
because DC never was intended to be one complete universe. Like that was kind of what set Marvel apart. Stan Lee says, no, all these characters exist in the same world. Fantastic Four can run into Spider-Man at any time. You know, Thor could bump into Iron Man at any point. He could like, you know, turn a corner and run into the Hulk. But DC, Batman was never really meant to exist in the same world as Superman. And then DC started saying, okay, maybe we can make these characters all kind of coexist, but it didn't really mesh. So in 1985, I believe it was, they just said, no, we're going to blow everything up literally. And they just blew up all these different planets and different realities and said, everyone was starting fresh. And then they, of course, needed to retell the the origins of these characters. And they wanted to say, okay, we're going to start Batman from scratch. Yes, exactly. And this was, uh, I mean, the best way to kind of go about it but I mean, I, I don't um, completely agree that like, you know, uh, with with what they did with um, Crisis of Infinite Earths, because it is pretty much like a convoluted mess of a story. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, the, I, I think one of the strengths of DC and something I really did enjoy it, are these like um, stories uh, of different realities and different kind of tellings of you know a, a popular characters um you know th- there are these stories uh of like batman as uh you know batman by gaslight uh where he's like a detective uh in, you know in england uh, hunting jack the ripper uh or there's like you know uh these other elseworld stories of batman Superman as a pirate. red sun Superman yes. red sun one of the best elseworld yes. stories ever these kind of what ifs in the dc universe exactly and it, I think that was one of the strengths of DC was that it could be so flexible with, you know, different creative teams that come in and they can borrow the character and do whatever they like. Uh, You would think that, you know, the Dark Knight Returns would exist in its own universe uh, separate from, you know, the main DC kind of uh, timeline. It kind of does because Frank Miller, with these two bookends, he does kind of create his own kind of dark knight universe that so this was this this story kind of serves two masters it does fulfill that sort of retelling rebooting of batman's origin but it also kind of cements this idea that frank miller has his own take and he has his own version of batman um and we can talk about that a little bit whether you re- like there are some connections that kind of tie in very closely to dark knight returns but there's some things Maybe it doesn't completely connect. Um, and just before we get into the nitty gritty, just kind of give you a bit more overview. Uh, so this was originally conceived as a standalone graphic novel, but Denny O'Neill, the editor of Batman that you already mentioned, he convinced Frank Miller to publish it in the main Batman series as four different issues. So this was issue 404, 405, 406, and 407. I couldn't exactly work out what year it came out. I think it was 87, but some books that I have uh, credit it to 1986. Yeah, so I'm I've not seen entirely well. sure. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. But um, I just also want to make sure that we credit the fantastic letterer, Todd Klein, who's a fantastic letterer. He's one of the best in the business. And the colorist, Richmond Lewis, who did an amazing job coloring this. She's actually David Masichelli's wife. Wow. I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know that either until I was doing this research, but I think that's just so cool that both 
Mazzucchelli and Frank Miller uh, prefer to work with their wives as colorists. I think that's a really cool collaboration. Um, yeah, when Frank Miller drew The Dark Knight Returns, his colorist was his then wife, Lynn Varley. So it's kind of cool that both these uh, creators work with their wives. That's really kind of a cool collaboration. Um, the other thing I just want to say is that Frank Miller is having an amazing run at this time. I have this book. It's called A Thousand and One Comics You Must Read Before You Die, edited by Paul Gravitt. And three books back to back to back are uh, Batman, Dark Knight Returns, Daredevil Born Again, and Batman Year One. So in this book of A Thousand and One Books, A Thousand and One Comics You Must Read Before You Die, Frank Miller has three in a row. Like, it's just, he's having a fantastic time. The quote is about this book from A Thousand and One Comics. Nothing is easy or simple in this gritty story, which could be offered as Exhibit 1 in any defense of the superhero genre against the charge of presenting the simplistic triumph of good over evil. It's it's layered. It's so well done. We both really enjoyed it. Kale, when did you first read this book? I read this book actually in the early 2000s. I didn't really... Well, I, I kind of knew it existed, but uh, I didn't read it because I was reading the current, you know, the week to week run of Batman at the time uh, in the 90s. But yeah, early 2000s, I was at one of my uh, favorite reading spots. It could have been the bookstore or the library. I'm not sure. <laughs> but uh, I read it there. And then um, I've read it several times since I have a digital version on Comixology. I first got this book at Kenya Kunya, the Japanese uh, bookstore in Kuala Lumpur and the Twin Towers. Uh, I've talked about this before. That's where I got a lot of my books. But uh, I had read Watchmen. I read Dark Knight Returns. I knew that those were kind of the two big books. And this is kind of the third book that everyone kind of talks about that really brought superheroes into serious attention towards superheroes and kind of really proved that you could tell serious, you know, adult stories with superheroes. So these kind of three... Batman, Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, and Watchmen are all kind of grouped together. So after I bought those first two, I had to go back and get Year One. Um, also at the time, this was in high school, I was making a a film uh, with past guest Ed Moline, one of my best friends from high school, and one of my other best friends from high school, John Morrison, where it was a realistic take on superheroes. So anytime I bought a comic book, I was kind of uh, pretending, or you know, I was writing it off as research, and I needed to buy more superhero comics to make this crazy student film that was supposed to be like an hour long and never actually managed to complete it but it was about these two uh guys who worked at a video store and someone tries to rob them and they fight them off and then they decide to become uh vigilante superheroes called anti-heroes that was uh supposed to be my magnum opus of high school before we went to film school and before we met in film school mm -hmm. so this was part of my research towards that realistic take on superheroes um you mentioned this you called this grounded and realistic um it is kind of funny that this is in, like we said, the kind of the same universe as Batman, the Dark Knight Returns, because Batman Dark Knight Returns also gets credited with taking superheroes seriously. But there's some really goofy stuff in Dark Knight Returns. Mm -hmm. The uh, the talking flying robots. Uh, that's kind of weird. Uh, Superman, you know, he shows up. So he Superman exists in the Dark Knight Returns. Superman exists in this one. I wanted to, that's one of the big questions I had for you kind of talking overall. Right. There's a few references. Uh, Barbara Gordon, Jim Gordon's wife, she mentions, you know, the Man of Steel. And then Alfred, Alfred Pennyworth, Bruce Wayne's loyal butler, he mentions or he says it has an offhand comment saying, like, I'll suppose you'll be flying next like that chap in or that fellow in Metropolis. What, what's your take on having Superman, you know, exist in this very grounded, realistic take on Batman? Yeah, I, I don't feel like 
I feel like it's a bit of a mismatch overall uh, to have Superman exist in this reality because I felt like, you know, uh, let's say, you know, Batman begins the film, uh, the Dark Knight, uh, they they seem to exist in their own kind of universe where people are relatively realistic to what, you know, like, let's say Batman as a character, you know, if he falls, he gets hurt. You know, if he uh, gets shot, he bleeds, that kind of thing. Right. And it kind of builds some uh, type of tension uh, towards, uh, like, let's say, you know, you're the investment that you have in a character and you feel like, oh, anything can happen to this character. Superman is one of those characters that's just so invulnerable and uh, just, I don't know, it, completely unrealistic <laughs> as a character. Um, so I don't, I don't feel it like it really fits into, you know, what kind of story they're trying to tell here. It's it's weird that they is everything else is so grounded and so realistic. Like you said, this this is a Batman that gets hurt. This is a Batman who who fails and he messes up. He's a very human Batman. Um, there's a scene where he's sneaking up on uh, this party. All these this the corrupt political elite of Gotham are having a party, and he he's got a backpack on like over his cape. And there's a a panel where you see him kind of mid, he's about to end the night and he's like, he's got his cape off and he's like changing on a rooftop about to like go into civilian clothes so he can get home. And then he hears calls for help and he's kind of caught, you know, like partway through his costume change. So there's there's so many of these little moments you don't see in some of these Batman stories where he's done it for so long and so many years, you know, he wouldn't get caught, you know, Mm -hmm. halfway through a costume change. You wouldn't see him carrying a backpack so to have such a grounded such a human batman and then also offhandedly mention there's a alien from krypton who can fly and shoot lasers out of his eyes you know it is a bit of a disconnect i i prefer my batman stories to be very grounded and i prefer for the larger dc universe to i i prefer batman to exist in a vacuum outside the larger dc universe Right. You know, I don't want other superheroes, anyone with superpowers to exist in my Batman stories. But in any of my other DC superhero stories, I 100% want Batman to exist because I think he's so cool. And I think he makes the superhero stories more interesting by having just this really kind of, you know, top of his game human around to counterbalance the uh, the the super the super the superheroes with all the superpowers. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yep, it totally makes sense. That's why I think that Batman works really well with uh, like Grant Morrison's uh, JLA and things like that, right? Like he is just a master strategist and he's the guy who kind of comes up with the plan that everyone follows and he's just a human being, right? Like, yes. um, and he has, you know, if, if you were to include the storyline Babel, he does uh, outsmart uh, all the superheroes as well. So, I mean, he's, he's, well, he's uh, just got plans with them, plans with them, plans, right? Exactly. That's, that's the whole storyline there is that he knows how to take down all of these gods. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do a JLL story, it better have Batman in there. But if you're going to do Batman, I prefer if he doesn't have, he doesn't run into super, uh, to superheroes and super powered people and super villains. Um, but I do, that's what I like. That's my preferred version of Batman, this very kind of grounded, realistic take. Um, Frank Miller, this is, like we said, the fourth book we've read by Frank Miller. Did you notice any kind of reoccurring Millerisms, any kind of the, the things that he goes back to time and time again? Well, he, he does love his prostitutes. and uh, Gotta have sex workers. He 
I don't. He, yeah, he's very, very intent on always including sex work, sex workers somewhere in his story. That's that's his way of kind of grounding the story. Is to give, well, I mean, it's true. I mean, like New York in the eighties uh, was very kind of seedy, and this kind of reminds me of New York in the eighties. They keep talking mm-hmm. about how, um, like, uh, te- Times Square was just a completely different place. It just you know in the nineteen eighties. Uh, and how it long the so-called it's... disnification of New York. Exactly, exactly. And how like seedy it was. And it was full of like, yeah, um, prostitutes and porno theaters and things like that. So have you been to New York, Kale? I, I, I have been to New York in the 80s. Yes. You went in the 80s. What, and do you remember it? I remember it being very dirty. Yeah. That's <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, yeah, my parents took a trip. Yeah. My parents took a trip there. And I was, uh, I remember when I was in New York, I was looking for the, uh, the Ghostbusters building and I was looking forward to meeting the Ghostbusters. Uh, I remember that. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, they took me around and I was just like, man, it's so dirty. (laughs) The streets are so dirty. So yeah, that's what I remember from New York. I, I went to New York with an ex-girlfriend Christmas 2010. It must've been. Um, and I was terrified. Um, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time in North America at that point. I'd only really kind of been in North America for, for college. I grew up overseas, as I've mentioned a few times. So like big North American cities were kind of scary. And like every movie, every comic, every TV show you see about New York is like this den of murder. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of worried. And we only spent the day there. We weren't there. We didn't spend the night because she had family just outside of town. So we stayed with them. But like it, it really was super clean and friendly. It felt like Disneyland. Like it it was not what I was expecting at all. But that was a good 20 something years after you'd been there. Exactly. Now it's, something maybe. Yeah. Now it's all beautiful and uh, everyone wants to go to New York. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah Frank Miller, Frank Miller and sex workers. And not only that, but sex workers uh, fighting Batman. He fights uh, mm-hmm. Catwoman and uh, her fellow sex workers. And another big thing that he loves is kicking Batman oh, yes. as Bruce Wayne. When he first tries to go undercover, he's kicking Catwoman and some other women. Um, <laughs> but on the more uh, upbeat side, he loves sound effects. So there's lots of really good sound effects in here as well. All of his books of have sound effects. Um, did you also notice the, he had some talking heads on the TV very much like in Dark Knight Returns? Oh, I didn't notice that. I, I didn't pay attention to that because I was so distracted by the, the hookers. Um, yes. <laughs> um, okay. Well, speaking of which, I mean, you kind of already alluded to this, but, uh, Catwoman is, we've seen, we've seen Selena Kyle as an older woman in Dark Knight Returns and she's a, a madam kind of running a brothel, but this again, rewinds everything. And she is a, a sex worker who knows karate. Um, at so, at one point she knocks out her pimp and she kind of strikes out on her own with her friend Holly and she becomes a cat burglar to support herself. But still, w- making making Selena Kyle Catwoman a sex worker, Kale, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, it, it did fit with my interpretation of Selena Kyle. Like I uh, grew up on the animated series and I uh, liked Selena Kyle as like a socialite who also is a cat burglar, uh, that interpretation, and not so much the uh, sex worker interpretation. 
So uh, when I, I read this book and also The Dark Moon Returns, I, I was kind of disheartened by the fact that she was a sex worker. Not that saying that, you know, sex work is any lesser than, you know, being a socialite or something, uh, but it's just it didn't fit my characterization or the mental kind of expectation of the character. Yeah, I just don't know if it's necessary. I mean, it's Frank Miller. I just I I don't know what his fascination is. Like it's 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 very similar to what he does later with um Sin City. He's got the right. girls of Old Town and they're they're very self-possessed. They choose what clients they take on and they also, you know, are ace shots with machine guns and they're also very skilled and they're very powerful Amazonian fighters, but they're also sex workers. I just don't, it's just one of his things that he, he keeps going back to. Um, so mm -hmm. it's just kind of questionable that his strong female character there, um, but he's got, he's got two other females that are prominent. There's Barbara Gordon, uh, Jim Gordon's wife, who's pregnant with his child, uh, his son James at the time. And then Sarah Essen uh, is working under Jim Gordon as a lieutenant, and then he uh, actually ends up having a extramarital affair with her. Uh, but as we know from reading Dark Knight Returns, they actually end up married uh, in the future of this Millerverse. And in the uh, the mainstream comics as well, they end up getting together, Sarah Essen and Jim Gordon. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. they're, they're, well, this, we'll talk about this later, but this does lead into The Long Halloween, which is very much a direct sequel to this. And... These, uh, she comes back as a character and she does uh, decide to leave Gotham for a spell there. Um, so like you said, it, it sets up a lot of things that other writers and artists uh, very much, you know, continued. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about the main character, Jim Gordon. What do you think of him as a main character? I, I feel like uh, he has many parallels to Bruce Wayne and Batman and his kind of uh, just journey within Gotham, you know, I, I, they both come in with the kind of best of, of intentions, trying to change uh, a very corrupt and dirty city. And uh, they're both, you know, uh, very uh, altruistic people uh, to begin with. And then they are kind of changed by Gotham and they have to change their tactics. Uh, and, you know, for, for Jim, like he um, learns about the corrupt police force and he feels like he's uh, fighting against a, a system that's kind of rigged against him. And then there's Bruce. Bruce has to, of course, uh, he also learns that the, the everything from like, you know, the, the mob runs everything basically in Gotham, including the police force. And then he has to compromise his uh, expectations uh, about, you know, uh, a justice system to enact his revenge on crime. You said that I, I totally agree that there's there's parallels. And one of the things that is very clear about that is they both ha have narration. So we get inside both their heads from page one. And it is very uncommon in most comics to see to kind of cut between scenes on the same page. But this, this book does it quite a bit where the page will be shared between Gordon and Bruce Wayne. Um, and it does really create those parallels and it really does just cement the fact that this is kind of both their story. But um, 
But Gordon, you said they come in, he comes in idealistic. I think he comes in, this is a demotion or a punishment for him. Like he's made trouble. We never find out what it is in Chicago yeah. and he's kind of been yeah. run out of town. So I think, and this is my point that I was kind of hinting at that I think Gordon's the main character because I think he has a much more interesting arc than Bruce Wayne. And Bruce Wayne, I think, is a really difficult character to write for. Gordon, you know, he's really kind of negative and kind of downbeaten. And then he sees the corruption. Then he decides he's going to be one of the only honest cops and he's going to stand up and do something. And he has to figure out how and he has to kind of decide what kind of man or what kind of father, what kind of husband he's going to be. And he does go through, I think, a lot more changes than the Bruce Wayne character. Mm -hmm. Um, Agreed. I think Bruce Wayne's a difficult character or challenging character to write because it's hard to get inside of his head because kind of sometimes my preferred version of Batman is the Batman that's been doing this for a few years where he's got everything figured out and he Mm -hmm. has those plans within plans within plans. He can take out the Justice League with some well-placed plans. You know, he's always got a solution, you know, in his utility belt. You know, a famous example from one of your favorite movies, the 1960s Batman, where Adam West has the bat shark repellent in his utility belt. So even when he gets attacked by a shark, he's got it figured out. Don't worry, I've, I've planned for every eventuality. (laughs) <laughs> it's hard that character's hard to 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 kind of connect with because he's always just going to turn out everything's going to be fine he's always going to land on his feet i like this one by rewinding the clock we see him kind of struggling kind of learning he's a bit more you know more fallible he he makes mistakes but even so he is kind of a he has one purpose and that's to rid gotham of crime and he starts out by wanting to rid Gotham of crime and he ends by wanting to rid Gotham of crime. He doesn't really go through as many changes as as the Jim Gordon character. And even writing and even thinking of um, Batman the Animated Series, they talk about this on the DVD of Batman the Animated Series. It's very often the villains that have a goal and have a clear purpose. And the villains are almost the protagonists. And Batman's very much the antagonist who's just there to stop them and just there to impede them. So it's a challenge to write Batman because he's so driven and so focused and it's i think it's hard sometimes to get inside of his head and i think one way that this book kind of explores what what drives bruce wayne is to parallel him with someone who's a bit more of an everyman character jim gordon and that kind of helps us understand sign of you know what is it like to be an honest man in this this corrupt city right and his uh need to have an ally, um, someone he can count on in this city For sure. uh, as well. Uh, I think that is what, you know, is also built up. I, I, I would say it's like the, you know, the two characters kind of mirror sev- just different perspectives of the justice system uh, in Gotham and how they have to come together to actually make a difference. I just want to tell you a little fun fact. Um, Detective Comics 27, the first uh, comic to ever feature Batman the first kind of panel you ever see on the first page is more of kind of a title panel we see the title and the credits and there's a bit of narration and we see like a silhouette of Batman in costume just a black outline the second panel on the page kind of the first proper panel of the story it's Bruce Wayne talking to Commissioner Gordon and so Commissioner Gordon was introduced at exactly the same time literally the same panel as Bruce Wayne Batman so he's always been a big part of this mythos from literally the very start. I thought that was kind of cool that he's always been a, a huge part of of this story and this universe. Oh, that's amazing. I, I didn't know that. I thought he was just kind of like a sidekick character that was created to give some kind of narrative to Batman. 
He was, but he was there from the start. Like he wasn't added retroactively or later, and he didn't meet Jim Gordon. Like at the at the creation, the birth of Batman, he was already an ally of Jim Gordon, and and I do like that this places emphasis on that that partnership. It is very much a partnership. Um, not to jump ahead, we'll go back to the other characters, but the the ending where Jim Gordon. His son is taken hostage by the enemies that he's made, and then he's trying to get his son and wife back, and they speed off with the son, and then Bruce Wayne's there to kind of, you know, I think it's implied that he's there to kind of make a peace offering and try to approach Jim Gordon as allies. He's mm-hmm. not wearing the Batman costume. He goes off, and he's the one who actually saves the the infant, James Gordon Jr., hands him back to Jim Gordon, the lieutenant, and Jim Gordon says, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much blind without my glasses right now. You better get out of here, implying that he can't make out the face and he doesn't know who it is that just helped him. He doesn't know who Batman really is. What do you think of that ending? Yeah, I think that he can definitely see (laughs) who Batman is. And um, I think that tacitly, um, Jim Gordon has always known who Batman is. Yeah. And he just kind of, uh, you know, looks the other way because he knows that Batman is a necessary um evil or not an evil but a necessary ally um for justice to be done in gotham so he's just gonna just let it slide basically yeah i think it's such a cool thing that you know prequels and i'm looking at some uh star wars lego that i have on my desk right now thinking about prequels they're often criticized and often rightly so with kind of you know, either telling us stuff we already know or telling us information we didn't need to know. Um, I really enjoyed Solo. I thought it was a great film. Um, but the fact that his name was given to him by someone because he didn't have a last name and the fact that, like, they had to show us where he got his gun and the fact that he had to explain that he calls Chewbacca Chewy because Chewbacca is too long to say. You, you don't need all that. <laughs> this is a prequel and this does something that's so cool is it reframes the entire history of Batman. So this yeah. is rewinding the clock, taking us to the start. If you accept this, and I, I had the same reading as you, that Jim Gordon, he can see, he knows darn well who's standing in front of him. He knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman. But suddenly now you're thinking back to every Batman story you've ever read before this and every Batman story you'll ever read after this. And you've got that at the back of your mind that Jim Gordon is playing dumb and he's pretending he doesn't know who Bruce, who Batman really is. He doesn't know it's Bruce Wayne. And it recontextualizes the entire history of Batman. And that's just such a great use of this prequel storytelling. Yeah. And, you know, if we were to connect the Dark Knight Returns to this book, uh, Jim Gordon already is friends with Bruce Wayne and Batman. And he already knows, you know, uh, the history and everything. So it's uh, possibly, you know, he's known since the beginning, right? Well, you're, you're referring to that one of the opening scenes of Dark Knight Returns where a much older Jim Gordon and an older Bruce Wayne are having drinks and he's Bruce Wayne's referencing. Remember how I used to pretend to drink champagne and it was actually soda water or seltzer um, and I was fooling you. And then we see that scene in this book that that's how he used to pretend to be a, a drunk playboy is he would get Alfred to bring him non-alcoholic drinks, pretend that it's champagne, pretend and to act drunk. Yeah, exactly. And just creating that through line. Yeah. Um, We talked about this, just how this Batman is just kind of a little bit, 
you know, not so sure of himself. And we get to, we hear that in his, in his monologues, his running narration. One of the scenes that I, I really thought really sums that up. There's the first time we see Batman in costume. Um, and we have this overhead shot of these three punks on a fire escape and they're robbing the apartment, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's the point of view of Batman and he's jumping down at them. They're looking straight up at us, the reader, but also at Batman with this look of fear in their eyes. You remember this scene? Yeah, I do. He jumps down this wonderful panel of him with his cape behind him. And then he gets into a fight and he's just so unprepared for this fight. It's close quarters. Someone almost falls off the, the fire escape. He manages to to subdue all three of them, but just, and he's just kind of collapses. You know, he's won, but it was, it was a close one. And then it ends that scene with the same perspective, the same shot of overhead looking down on the fire escape. But now Batman's lying there amongst these three unconscious bodies looking kind of staring up just kind of collapsing kind of out of breath and when we first see that perspective it's such uh, it's such a perspective of power but now it's such a defeatist there's he's lost the power and i just love that using that same camera angle to open and close that scene to show the difference between this powerful moment and this sort of oh my gosh i can't believe i got away with that moment and it just it just really really sells how this batman is just just managing to kind of get by and he's just getting away with things a little bit and you know he knows that he needs to get some allies soon otherwise he's not gonna be able to do this very long yeah exactly and i also noticed that his costume uh maybe the way that they've been they drew batman in this comic but he looks more like an adam west ish kind of uh batman in the you know costume wise um Uh. it could be also one of the things that they kind of try to make him look more human uh, not an armored suit, you know, or like a super muscular Batman or anything like that. He's just like a regular guy in a in a costume that. Yeah, it does. It does feel more tactile and more like he's wearing, you know, like a sweater or a, a homemade costume rather than mm-hmm. the the 1989 um, Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, like molded rubber or, you know, like your costume we mentioned on our uh, Truth, Red, White and Black. Um, yeah your the dark knight and dark knight uh rises and batman begins sort of the the armored sort of biker gear it's this is yeah it's much more kind of homemade and you can kind of see his his human body underneath it's not it's not protected under layers and layers of rubber and and armor mm-hmm. yeah and you would think that uh, in time he would learn to include armor in his costume but because you know he gets hurt so much in this book um and he, he is so vulnerable. Uh, maybe he, later on he kind of uh, evolved his costume after that. But yeah, you can definitely see like, you know, how just vulnerable he is as, as a character. Yeah. And so moving on to other characters, Alfred. Um, he was mm-hmm. a big part of Dark Knight Returns. He was always showing up with some really, you know, witty zingers. He was always really kind of snarky to Batman. Um, he shows up in the very start of issue one. He has one line, you know, welcoming Bruce home and he doesn't show up again until the fourth issue. Yeah. Alfred is, you know, uh, not in this book that often actually like as character, right? Alfred is part of the mythology of Batman. He, he is, uh, the nurse, the, uh, you know, uh, sidekick, uh, <laughs> the you know remote driver of cars you know like he he is like there for bruce basically all the time and 
uh, in most Batman books, but he is pretty light in this book. Uh, I'm not sure why, but uh, maybe because they wanted to concentrate on the relationship between Gordon and Batman and not so much Alfred and Batman. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it, it is kind of weird not to see him be that involved in this book. I, I think you're right. I think that, it, you know, because Alfred does sometimes fulfill the same kind of role as Jim Gordon. He's a bit of a sounding board. Um, you know, Batman bounces his ideas off of him. He kind of talks things through and he kind of also grounds Batman and kind of points out just how ridiculous this whole thing is. But I think you're right. It does place more emphasis on the Jim Gordon relationship and doesn't take away from that. But it also, because we don't see very much of Bruce Wayne's home life, we don't see him at home talking with Alfred. We kind of, it does then place more emphasis on Jim Gordon as a character. And I, I really do feel that Jim Gordon is the more of the main character in, in this story, which I don't mind. Cause I, I do like him. I think he's a very interesting character. You know, they've given him flaws and he does have moments of weakness. He does have moments of doubt. Um, so I, I, I don't mind that Gordon has such a prominent role in this, but I think at, at the, you know, the, the trade-off is you don't get as much Alfred as, you know, if you're an Alfred fan, <laughs> All which I Alfred am fans. mostly. Well, <laughs> I mean, it was Edward Zimblast Jr. I think his name was the voice actor from Batman, the animated series. He did such an amazing job of portraying yes. that character. Um, so and I think Frank Miller does a great job of writing snarky Alfred. And when he does show up, he's great. He's Bruce Wayne's doing his push-ups one morning and Alfred in this book is saying, Master Bruce, I've just come across a fascinating piece in the Times. It concerns the effect of lack of sleep among the marginally sane. And he's just <laughs> letting them know how just bat crap crazy this whole thing is in the, you know, the, the snarkiest way he can. Yeah, exactly. Um, moving on to some other characters. Merkel. Uh, did you remember Merkel from Dark Knight Returns? I didn't know. I did not. He, he's it's an interesting character because it's kind of Gordon's right hand man, but he's never really featured on panel. He's always kind of off panel, and there's scenes in Dark Knight Returns where he's like behind a newspaper and Gordon's talking to him, or in this and Dark Knight Returns, we kind of see him in silhouette or in shadow. So it's a weird character that, again, kind of Gordon's sounding board that he's always shouting orders or always asking. Merkel to do stuff for him, but Merkel's never really featured, never really becomes a character. It's just kind of a, again, one of those connective tissues between this and the Dark Knight Returns. Um, Loeb, Commissioner Loeb, the corrupt commissioner of police. I wanted to ask, what do you think of all his memorabilia that he has in his office? Uh, no, I, I thought, <laughs> well, Loeb as a character also, uh, I mean, I uh, thought of Loeb from the Dark Knight trilogy. Uh, he's there as well, and he He's less corrupt in in the movie, but uh, overall, I, I I mean, Loeb as a character is uh, exists basically just to be kind of replaced, and um, his trophies are just kind of knickknacks, and it, it maybe perhaps also um, mirrors uh, what Batman is going to do later on with uh, you know things that he captures from his rogues gallery. Uh, oh, the, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, the the classic Batcave dinosaur and the the giant coin. Exactly, exactly. Just kind of like stuff that he kind of steals from his, uh, yeah, his foes, I suppose. I I thought because so Commissioner Loeb has like a Mickey Mouse 
uh, phone and he's got like all these cartoony characters and like little knickknacks everywhere. I, I was wondering if this is sort of Miller and Masakelli just saying, you know, this is not cartoony. Our story is not a cartoon. Hmm. It's not a silly comic book. This is serious, serious comic art. I was just wondering if like, you know, giving this, uh, you know, these trinkets to this villainous character, if that was the idea there to kind of say, you know, don't expect these colorful cartoony characters in our story. Oh, yeah. I, I was thinking the other way. I was just like, oh, this is like, you know, his Loeb's version of the giant dinosaur and the penny and stuff like things that he's just kind of collected um, just by, you know, like busting mob bosses and, or whatever it is. Right. Like he doesn't he is in with the mob, but like, yeah, whatever other like criminals that he has kind of. Taken so you, you think Loeb has taken these as trophies himself? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. Well, I mean, just interesting side note, like the, the bat cave doesn't even exist right now. He mentions, you know, there's a cave of bats underneath his mansion and he does call it the bat cave but it's not the bat cave we think of it doesn't have the the robot dinosaur it doesn't have the giant coin it doesn't have his bat computer it doesn't have there's no batmobile in this you know the, the best we get is he makes himself kind of a paraglide paraglider that's got that kind of bat wing shaped so you know this is so early on that he hasn't made all of his uh his merchandise with all of his logo and all of his uh itemization uh, even the uh, the motorcycle uh reminded me of the uh the bat cycle that well, hopefully he'll get eventually. But um, right now, yeah, it's just a motorcycle. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't have any ears or wings on it. How would you know that it's Batman's motorbike? <laughs> One last character I want to talk about before we move on to the writing. Um, Flass, the, the corrupt cop who meets Gordon, kind of welcomes him into Gotham City. Um, what do you think about him? Did you rec- Did his design uh bring anything else to mind any other comics we've read yeah so flash's design uh reminded me of um the character from daredevil born again uh the patriot patriotic character i forget his name oh you think he looks like nuke yeah he looks like nuke to me oh because yeah. i thought that he looks exactly like the the cop who's assigned to protect ben urich so oh. Ben Urich, who is very much the Jim Gordon to Matt Murdock's Daredevil as Jim Gordon is to Bruce Wayne Batman, mm-hmm. he in Daredevil Born Again, his life is threatened and they assign him a, uh, a a cop to follow him around and protect him. And he's drawn almost exactly like Flass. Oh, I thought that Flass as like a um, nuke kind of character fit him better as because he's personality wise you're right yeah he's supposed to be like this big like over uh i I don't know he's supposed to be like intimidating as a character and yes i I felt like yeah that's what the function that nuke kind of played as well you know so um yeah and he is very much a secondary villain just like nuke was in that but i i thought he he looks i I thought i felt like david masakelli just kind of needed to uh to bring in a character and just repurpose this character officer hedgefors uh from daredevil mm-hmm. born again like recasting one of your favorite actors if you're a director <laughs> uh the writing it's got a very interesting structure this you know as the title implies year one it takes place in the first year of 
Bruce Wayne Batman's career, it does jump around quite a bit. You know, we, we keep seeing the dates. It tells us the date. Then we jump ahead a little bit, jump ahead a little bit. It's all these kind of snippets, these little moments. What do you think of that? This sort of uh, these little vignettes all kind of strung together to make up the entire year. Yeah, I mean, it's just an easy way to kind of get through the year. And um, because obviously you can't have like a book that's, you know, I don't know, thousand pages or something. Um, and would you read that? I would. Uh, yeah, but, you know, it's I, I don't know if I would have the time to read all of that, <laughs> honestly speaking. But yeah, he, he uh, I think he did the right thing here with just uh, it also kind of speaks to <laughs> Uh, the 80s montage, you know, like where he gets the hero gets a little bit I better. I know you love a good montage, Kale. Oh, man, I love montages. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it is like a product of the 80s and, you know, products of the 80s usually have a good montage, you know, of a uh, character getting slightly better over time and uh, evolving. So, <laughs> yeah, it does. It is sort of like, you know. As the famous South Park and Team America World Police montage song says, you know, with each shot, you show a little improvement to show it all would take too long. But <laughs> yeah. um, quick side note, though, you mentioned that you might not have time. We're both pretty busy. Um, this was a, I've reread this book many times. You've read this book many times as well. Uh, it was it was hard to finish this book in time for our recording, even though it's only four issues um i my son was born uh eight weeks when this episode will come out he'll be eight weeks old uh he's great we love him we're very happy but uh trying to read a book when i'm when it's my turn to be with him and to make sure he's okay like i keep trying to like okay i settle him it looks like he's gone to sleep i'm gonna read some of this book and then he wakes up and then i'll try to read out loud to him you know some father-son bonding time and that only lasts for a few pages and then he needs to be fed or he's got to change his diaper and then i'll even try to bounce him on my shoulder to calm him down while i'm reading so i was reading this in just fits and starts the entire time it was a uh, it was a very sporadic read uh it took me much longer than it should have um but i, I did it for this podcast kale i appreciate it Good. Well, I'm really hoping that it gets to the point where I can read these because I, I was reading out loud. I was doing all the characters voices in the narration. Um, I hope that, you know, as, as he kind of enjoys the the act of being read to a bit more, that this can be kind of our time together. And obviously, as he gets older and starts to read himself, we can read together. But uh, yeah, it, it was it, it was interesting reading this one with, with a brand new newborn baby. Um <laughs> Also, the, the stuff with Gordon being a dad, an expectant father and a new father, it, it did definitely hit differently this time. And just, you know, wondering about what kind of world your son is going to grow up in. And, you know, can you protect him and can you be the, the type of man you need to be to be a good father? It did hit differently than any other time I've read this book. Whoa, but yeah. But I, I want to go back to something you said at the start of this episode, Kayle, and you said that you really feel like this is a great way to welcome new readers into the Batman mythos. And I, I, I'm not sure, like I was really, I was wondering this and really trying to question this. Is this really, does this work as a standalone introduction to Batman and Jim Gordon and the world of Gotham? Because I, I really feel that this really only kind of works if you already have knowledge of this universe. If you already kind of know who these characters are, because we do see the flashback to to the Waynes being shot, you know, when he was a child, but it's done in one page, only a few panels. 
it starts with him coming home from already traveling all around the world and kind of presumably learning all these skills that he's going to put to use. We, you know, we, we see the moment of inspiration, which is done so powerfully at the end of the first issue where he is beat up and bloodied and he's at home and then a bat crashes through this, the window of his study and the bat lands on top of the bust of his father. And that's how he gets the idea to become a bat. And we see the bat sitting on top. So the ears become the, the ears of the bust and that's inspires his cowl, his costume. But I mean, do you really think that you could give this to someone who's never heard of Batman, which is hard because Batman is so universally recognizable, but do you really think this would be enough? Because I, I, I don't know. I, I think you need to already have some knowledge. You need to bring some knowledge to the table. What do you think about that? I mean, it's an origin story, so it is easier to jump into this than, let's say, The Dark Knight Returns. You know, uh, let's say somebody who hasn't read comic books uh, and has hadn't or or hadn't uh, come across other superheroes. It's just an origin story is an easy way to just kind of jump in, right? Like, it's just, uh, it gives you... Like Bruce Wayne uh, is, you know, as a character, he's a pretty two dimensional <laughs> because, as you mentioned, he is um, at least in this book, he is very uh, uh, focused on his goals uh, about uh, kind of remaking Gotham. And uh, Jim Gordon, of course, can be the everyman, the kind of, uh, you know, the point of view that everyone kind of identifies with. So um, overall, I, I think that it's, you know, a good way to kind of jump into the character. But like, what point were you trying to make earlier about, um, you know, for, for, for people, you know, fresh readers to come in, like what, what, are, what would they be missing, um, it, you know, uh, to kind of learn or learn or get into the story? <clears throat> I don't know. I just don't know if it tells you enough and not that I, I want to see because, again, I, I think you know, every, almost every Batman movie and even, you know, Batman v Superman and, you know, even the animated movies, they, they retell you the origin and they retell you what happened with the Waynes going down that alley and crime alley and getting shot. And that led to Bruce wanting to avenge them. I just, you know, I guess it is maybe, maybe it's just, it serves its purpose of wanting enticing you to read more you know it does set up a lot of things that it doesn't necessarily pay off you know they mention the Batcave. you know he doesn't have the batmobile at this point there's no mention of robin so i, I maybe it, it does serve that purpose of just kind of introducing you enough and teasing out enough that it will encourage new readers and bring people into it but i i just see it as kind of meta textual that you kind of already and I, again like i said i think it's hard not to kind of have an idea of who batman is already whether it's from the tv shows right the comics the cartoons um i think if you're someone who's heard of batman and you kind of know like okay you know he dresses like a bat he fights crime he's a superhero but doesn't have powers if you know at least that much i think this will kind of let you know wow okay there's some depth to this and i can see now kind of where you know, where he kind of got started. But I think you need to come prepared with a little bit of foreknowledge of who this guy is. I see. Well, that's possibly true. I'm, of course, kind of biased because I knew who Batman was before I read this yeah, book. Yeah, so exactly. Me, I, I was mean, just like, oh, yeah. 
This is perfect. I mean, Batman's kind of just has always existed for me. Like, I don't remember a time not knowing of Batman. Yeah. Speaking of, like, you know, continuation and stuff, have you read Batman Year Two? I was going to ask you, I never really read it because it doesn't, it's not as lauded as this story and it's not the same creators. I've mentioned this before, you know, I'm, I'm more apt to follow creators, especially writers than I am to follow characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And neither Frank Miller or David Mazzucchelli are involved in year two. Uh, But um, one of your favorite creators, uh, Todd McFarlane was involved in year two. Did you read it? I have not. No, I, because I thought that, uh, you know, chronologically, this would be followed up with something like The Long Halloween, uh, which is also one of my favorite books. So, oh, uh, gosh, I, I love the, I love The Long Halloween. Yeah. I mean, I have that book in uh, paperback and digital. Uh, I have a collector's edition and everything, too, uh, thanks to Jake. Um, so it, it's, you know, it's an amazing story. And I, I thought that, yeah, it's just kind of is that the Batman year two story almost. Um, and we don't really need a Batman year two, you know? So, well, the, the one thing, the big criticism I've heard about Batman year two is that he uses a gun. Something happens and he kind of goes Ugh. back on his no guns policy. And I, I, I mean, you know, I didn't read it. I don't know if they justified. I don't know if they managed to, you know, I think by the end of it, he realizes, no, I'm going to stick to my no guns policy. But that is such a fundamental part of Batman's core belief system that I was worried that that book wouldn't have a a firm understanding of who Batman is. And I think that Batman year one has such a strong understanding. So that that was one thing that kind of really made me shy away from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that's totally understandable. But I do know that he fights a character called the Grim Reaper or something to that effect. Uh, and that partially inspired the Phantasm in Mask of the Phantasm, um, which we we brought up, which is takes, you know, pieces from Batman Year One as well. But like you said, uh, Batman the Long Halloween is such a direct continuation of Year One. Uh, Harvey Dent, who's kind of just a very minor character here, he eventually becomes Two-Face, one of my favorite Batman villains of all time. Um, he's very minor in this, but in Batman, the long Halloween, it's very much set up that Gordon Dent and Batman are this like very strong triumvirate of, uh, three of the only honest men in Gotham teaming up to take down the corrupt system. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful book. Um, I, I want to quickly kind of bring up the almost live action. Uh, well, it was the live action adaptation of Batman year one that almost happened uh, after Batman and Robin, um, they were, this is the one that was going to be directed by Darren Aronofsky. That's correct. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we all know that Frank Miller's books are sometimes hyper violent and things like that. But what I learned from my research was that Frank Miller actually pushed back on a lot of the ideas that, uh, Darren Aronofsky had, uh, for Batman because uh, he wanted Batman to be uh, so hyper violent that he would put people in comas and um, there there is uh, some uh, stuff in it, in the script where Batman kind of rips people apart with like metal claws um, and uh, yeah that the adaptation would have wouldn't have been that close to the comic material at all um, and I'm kind of glad that you know uh, Frank Miller was able to push back and then of course the studio 
decided to do Batman Begins several years later instead of uh, doing uh, Aronofsky's version of Batman. But I thought that was kind of funny to hear that Frank Miller was pushing back on violence. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that someone that Frank Miller is like, whoa, that's that's too dark. That's too far. Yeah. But you know, the actual quote was that he uses he was saying that, um, yeah, that's not Batman. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Kale, you mentioned that this Batman in this Aronofsky version would have had claws and listeners who listened to our first Radioactive Man or our second Radioactive Man episode uh, when they changed batman and Azrael became batman and they gave him claws and spikes you said you were into it as a kid yeah as a kid yeah in the 90s it was <laughs> uh hyper <laughs> metalized you know uh was was the way to go I, I remember um there were you know uh, uh characters like in young blood who would have these like metal shoulder pads and claws and things like that for no reason whatsoever and uh, I, I guess it was also because um, Logan and Wolverine were huge back then. And uh, maybe comic creators decide to borrow things from uh, that character, like the Very claws. Spiky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think Batman Begins is amazing. Uh, uh, you and I watched it together. I think the second time we'd each seen it, we watched it together in the cinema. Um Dark Knight, uh, amazing. I think it's one of the best Batman movies, one of my favorite movies. Dark Knight Rises. I have so many problems with Dark Knight Rises, but Batman Begins bores very heavily from this. Again, taking it back to the origin of Batman, seeing how he kind of becomes the Batman we kind of know and expect him to be, and also just kind of see him learning, but also a very grounded, very realistic take. Yeah, I really enjoyed Batman Begins. Uh, I saw it uh, first time in IMAX because I was so excited. And uh, it had certain select scenes that were in, you know, full IMAX um, size uh, as far as uh, resolution is concerned. And that was like really cool. Um, and I just I, I loved the the kind of retelling of the the Batman origin. Uh, not so much Rachel Dawes as a character. I <laughs> <laughs> like Rachel does um but she also had a function in the story um but yeah I think that uh they borrowed things like you know the sonar device uh in this book where you know a whole bunch of bats show up whenever you yes. know Batman is cornered by the police um that was kind of cool um yeah of course in Batman Begins he has the cave and he has the Batmobile but um yeah it's just yeah, a Batman making mistakes. There's like the uh, scene where he goes to see Gordon in Batman Begins and uh, he barely escapes with his life. And that was kind of cool to show that, you know, he's just a person <laughs> and uh, he, you know, he's uh, susceptible to, to harm. Um, and uh, yeah, this is kind of cool, like elements that I, I really, really, really liked about Batman Begins. It was it was awesome. I I was so excited for it. I, you know, this realistic take on Batman I love because I always get so excited that Batman, anyone could be Batman if you devote enough time and energy and enough training. You know, there's nothing. You know, if you do have that drive and that complete devotion to a to a goal, then yeah, you anyone has the potential to be Batman, which is I think is so cool about the character. You mentioned that scene from Batman Begins that they took directly from this where 
he's cornered by the police and he activates sonar and all these bats fly out and just provide him with an exit. Such a great visual. I want to talk about the visuals, the art, because David Mazzucchelli, amazing in this. And I, I want to, in our Daredevil Born Again episode with Josh Robb, we talked about this collaboration and I was trying to explain myself. I don't think I explained myself eloquently enough that I said Mazzucchelli in Born Again is... I, I use the term serviceable. I, I think what I tr was trying to get at was it just... It doesn't have a, a unique kind of personality in Born Again. It just... I would have a hard time looking at those pages and distinguishing them from other mainstream comic book artists of the time. And I like Mazzucchelli because as his career progresses, he becomes a bit more graphic and a bit more unique and idiosyncratic. And it's he has developed such a strong, unique, personalized style. And I think here in year one, he's starting to do that. He's still working in mainstream comics with a very well-established mainstream character, you know, Batman. But he is, it's a bit more unique. It's a bit more personalized. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't confuse these pages with anyone else. It's a bit more graphic. It's a bit less realistic, a bit more expressionist. Um, I had this book, Drawing Words and Writing Pictures, by Jessica Abel and Matt Madden, and they have a quote about Mazzucchelli saying that he started out as relatively conventional as a mainstream artist and over the years developed an increasingly expressive and idiosyncratic style, often featuring loose and inky brushwork. And I just love that in this. The, the, the inking here just seems more lush and, you know, a bit looser than what he did in Born Again. And I just really, really like this because this is a hint of what he's going to do when he's kind of breaks away from mainstream superhero comics and the kind of work that he does, like Asterios Polyp, one of my favorite graphic novels of all time. So I really want to just celebrate just how cool the art is. And it is him working within the confines of a mainstream comic book. But he is starting to kind of push into his own territory. What do you what do you think of Mazzucchelli's art? Yeah, I loved it, and I think that it was maybe an evolution from his Daredevil work. I mean, his Daredevil work was also really good, but I, I really enjoyed um, the art in this book. It, it was so beautiful, and and big part of that, what makes it so beautiful, is the coloring. I think he's working with his wife, Richmond Lewis. And it has a big impact on the art. It's it's kind of flat colors for the most part, but there are some gradients and some nice washes with uh, with watercolors. And they talk about this when you look at interviews and look at some of the special editions of this book that they knew it was going to be printed on newsprint, so that was uh, impacted a lot of their color choices. It's very muted. It's just it's very gorgeous to look at, and the coloring has has a big impact on that. Yeah, exactly. And I, I feel like the digital version that I got um, is really great at highlighting those colors and stuff. And it's it looks beautiful because, I don't know, it just pops a little bit more on the screen versus uh, a printed version, I, I would imagine. I, I had the printed version that has, it's a very black with only a little bit of red and it's like Batman silhouette. Uh, and it's very kind of inky on the shoulders. It's a, like half of his face on the front cover, half his face on the back cover. It's a great cover, but the print of that was really nice. But this comiXology version that I'm looking at now, because most of my comics are back in Canada, they really did a great job on comiXology of reproducing these colors. Just really, really rich and beautiful. Um, nice. Speaking of, sorry, what are you going to say? No, that's it. All good. Yeah. 
Uh, I just want to talk about some really great visuals that I liked. Um, there's a scene where Batman's climbing up the side of a building. Did that remind you of anything? Yeah, totally. The 60s Batman. Yeah! <laughs> yes, yeah. It's a total callback, I think, to the 60s, the, that classic visual of Batman and Robin scaling the side of a building. And it looks they filmed it in a way that looks like they're climbing up vertically, but the way they filmed it was just on a horizontal set, and they just had them like holding the rope and pretending to climb just kind of across horizontally, but they kind of flipped it here where uh, he's climbing vertically up the side of a building, but the the layout of the page is tilted a bit. So it is kind of horizontal. I thought exactly the same thing. It was this reference to the sixties Adam West. Uh, there's some great moments of Batman kind of silhouetted. There's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of narration, but every once in a while he has like a, a silent panel. It's just such powerful punctuation. And same thing for when he cuts to these silhouettes. It's just such a visual punctuation. It really grabs your attention. Um, just so many really great visuals. Batman jumping down, attacking those three punks on the uh, on the fire escape. When Gordon is attacked by the other corrupt cops. Uh, great visual. Lots of silhouettes there. When Gordon fights Flass. Uh, there's just so many cool, cool visuals. There's a thing he does a few times where uh, it has black panels, like either Bruce Wayne's been knocked unconscious or that fantastic sequence when he confronts the corrupt politicians and he kind of blows a hole through the wall. And we see that great, great silhouette of Batman. Just his eyes are white. There's smoke and there's a hole in the wall and everything else is black except for the hole. And then he kind of cuts the lights and everything goes to black and there's a black panel there. Any big visuals that jumped out at you that really stuck with you? Yeah, for me, it was the, uh, yeah, that hole when he makes a hole in the wall. And then that is such a cool visual of Batman as just uh, this, you know, ethereal, spooky character. And uh, he at least what he's trying to portray to the criminal underworld. Uh, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that, that sequence is amazing, and he tells him, you know, your time is over. From now on, none of you are safe. Ugh, it's just yeah. total badass Batman. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to talk about this collaboration just because these two are just working together so well. Um, when Josh Robb was on the show talking about Daredevil Born Again, he mentioned this rumor that is quite prevalent. You'll see it mentioned a few times online that... Miller was very strict in dictating what Mazzucchelli was supposed to draw and um, provided him layouts and kind of said, you have to draw it like this, but just kind of go over it in your style. Apparently that was just a rumor and that's been hotly contested. And Mazzucchelli, you know, says, no, I was given a lot of freedom. Um, I found a quote from Frank Miller in Stan Lee's How to Write Comics. And he says, since I don't collaborate with other artists that often, I get to work with the best and I wouldn't want to handcuff them. And according to Dave Gibbons, who drew Watchmen in his book, How Comics Work by Dave Gibbons, he talks about collaborating with Alan Moore and Frank Miller. And he says that Frank Miller is like Miles Davis. He's a wonderful musician, but he'll improvise, throwing ideas out there. And he talks about how, you know, he gives his artists a loose outline, then he gets some sketches back and he makes changes. So I, I do think that this is a true collaboration where Frank Miller is really letting Mazzucchelli play and figure things out. And they're kind of I don't think that he is being as uh, much of a dictator as as the rumors are of how he writes for other artists. Yeah, and I'm kind of glad that he uh, took a step back from everything to let uh, Mazzucchelli 
draw his comic. Um, I mean, not that he probably would have gotten the offer to draw Batman Year One, but uh, yeah, I, I think that it's it's a it's a good call, uh, especially just to kind of like collaborate with someone. It's always good to you know get that feedback. I also think that. At this point in his career, he just realized how much work it was to write and draw. We talked about this on our Daredevil episode that he started on Daredevil as just the artist. And then he was clashing with the writer. So the editor said, okay, fine, you can write and draw. And then he just realized how much work that was to write and draw. And then he started to write a little bit more and, you know, bring in other artists to to bring his scripts to, to life. And so I think after doing The Dark Knight Returns, I don't think he probably he probably knew that he couldn't keep up enough to do this four issue series as well um but yeah you're totally right if you know trust your collaborators and uh, see what they bring and i i think not necessarily that he would have done this but the fact that this isn't on a grid dark knight returns is so so much ad- adhered to that 16 panel grid on every page and this isn't on any kind of grid i think that is probably the best argument for Miller letting Mazzucchelli do what he wants and not telling him exactly and not giving him layouts or giving him rough pages to copy because, you know, Mazzucchelli is inventing layouts from page to page. Yeah, exactly. Um, One last thing, you know, you wanted to talk about the adaptations, you know, this has been kind of you know, different movies have kind of taken different pieces. It's kind of been picked apart and the, you know, like a, like a car being, you know, uh, taken, the engine's been used here, the steering wheel and all these different movies. But did you watch the animated adaptation? There's a straightforward adaptation of this, uh, four issue comic. Did you read, did you watch that one? I did. Yes. Uh, I watched it a long time ago. I didn't watch it for this episode. Uh, but I remember Ben McKenzie being cast as Batman and I didn't, agree with that whatsoever he was really huge in uh the tv show gotham and i think that was maybe part of why he got cast as batman just to to keep him in the mythos a little bit but that was that was interesting yeah he's i mean he's i always will know him as ryan from the oc but he was cast as jim gordon in gotham and then now he gets to play bruce wayne batman but He's very flat. I like him as an actor. Uh, he's just, he's very flat in this, uh, in this adaptation. Um, mm-hmm. Brian Cranston is cast as Gordon and he's, he's much more engaging. And he's but perfect. Yeah. It's just, if you're going to adapt these original graphic novels, I mean, part of what makes them so iconic and memorable is the art, not just the story, but the way they're brought to life. And Mazzucchelli's art is just, it's so perfect. And it's this lush inky line art. And they, don't translate that to the adaptation, whether you can or not. It's just, it just has this more sort of generic animated cartoon feel, these thinner lines. Mm-hmm. It's more cookie cutter, the art style, not to take away from the animators, but it, if you're not going to take his art style, then I, I kind of want to be more protective of the stories and I don't see the point. And the thing that just crushed me is the end credits when they're showing all the, the voice cast, they use panels from the comic. And yeah, We've just watched the movie in this, you know, well animated, but more kind of generic animation style. And then over the credits, they show what could have been. Uh, It was just such a bummer. Yeah, I know. It's possibly like a budget based decision than like something like uh, I, I, I keep thinking back to like hyper detailed anime that I've seen in the past. 
and how much care is taken to uh, make it look just amazing. And uh, yeah, for for certain animations like or animated uh, adaptations of comic books, I haven't quite seen anything that really resembles a comic book. Year one, one of my favorite Batmans, one of your favorite Batmans. It was really fun talking about it and just kind of celebrating this book. It's such a highly enjoyable reread. Kale, what are we reading next? Yeah, we're going to be reading Daredevil Yellow by Jeff Loeb. Kale, and like we said, we're, we're putting more and more stuff on social media. Where can people find us online? You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Matt and Kale Read Comics or on Twitter at Matt and Kale Read. So we will see you in another two weeks for our next episode. Kale, thanks so much. Everyone, keep reading comics. We'll see you soon. Take care.